Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 1st of June 2020 and this is episode 163. On today's Dispatches podcast, I talked to Jerry White, chair of the Cork branch of the Western Front Association, about his recent research into Tom Barry. Barry was a British soldier who turned to be a leading IRA commander during the Anglo-Irish War that erupted after the armistice. I met up with Jerry recently in London before the recent COVID-19 lockdown. Jerry, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? Absolutely, Tom. I'm delighted to be here. My name is Jerry White. I'm the chairman of the Cork branch of the Western Front Association and also the Island of Ireland trustee on the association. And I, in my own case, I have also 43 years service with the Defence Forces. My own interest in the Great War, I suppose, stems from a wider interest I've always had since I was young in military history in general. But my own grandfather, fought in the First World War and a study I made of many of the Irish volunteers who fought in the War of Independence and Civil War. During that course I noticed that many of them also served in the British Army and that was another thing that led me to on on to study the Great War. Now we're going to talk about Tom Barry today. He was a leader or famous leader of IRA units in the Cork area during the Anglo-Irish War of 1919-1921. Can you tell us uh, about what he did and his reputation? Well, Tom Barry was one of the most significant um, leaders on the Republican side during the um, Anglo-Irish War or the War of Independence. He gained fame as a commander of the Flying Column of Cork No. 3 Brigade, which its area of operation was in West Cork. And he waged an extremely successful, from the Irish perspective, campaign of guerrilla warfare against the forces of the Crown in West Cork. Among his most notable engagements was the Kilmichael Ambush, where on the 28th day of November in 1920, the Flying Column um, ambushed and wiped out a mobile patrol comprised of 18 members of the Auxiliary Division of the Royal Irish Constabulary. That particular engagement changed the nature of the War of Independence in that it directly led to the imposition of martial law in the south of the country, which also had a number of consequences at the time, such as executions of, of members of the, of the IRA, um, the presence of the military out on the street. And in another context, it also led indirectly to the arson attack by the auxiliaries known as the burning of Cork. So a lot of ink has been spilt in recent years of discussing that the nature of the of the Kilmichael ambush would actually happen, but that was only one of many engagements undertaken by Tom Barry. He also launched a number of attacks against RIC barracks. He was also the commander of the column in an engagement known as the Cross Barry ambush, and he took on people that he considered to be spies and informers and eliminated them to stop that threat as he saw it that was posed by these people against his own men. Now, when we're talking about the area of West Cork, could you describe to us where that is in Ireland? Well, it's, it's on the southwest of Ireland. Cork is the biggest county, and so it would be the southwest of County Cork on the southwest coast of Ireland. It's 
very mountainy. It's a lot of valleys, rivers, streams, small towns, that type of countryside. Ideal countryside, really, for guerrilla warfare. And an intimate knowledge of that country and its terrain would give anybody operating in that area a distinct military advantage over their opponents. So what made Tom Barry such an effective leader? Well, this is interesting because a lot of people may not be aware of the fact that Tom Barry was the son of a RIC policeman, and he's also a veteran of the British Army, who, and he fought in the First World War. He was born in Cologan, County Kerry, on the 1st of July, 1897. He was the second eldest of 13 children born to RIC Constable Thomas Barry and his wife Margaret. And after the father left the force in 1907, the family moved to Roscarbury Village in West Cork. He went to Mungret College in County Limerick in from August 1911 to September 1912. And college register records show that Tom Barry went, and I quote, went home without knowledge of a superior and that he had no vocation. So in 1915, along with thousands of other Irishmen who were caught up in the euphoria that greeted the Great War all over Europe, he decided to join the British Army. He enlisted in the artillery and was sent to the artillery depot in Athlone for his recruit training. After that, he was posted to the 4th Brigade Artillery in the 7th Meerut Division. He subsequently said, discussing his reasons for joining the British Army, in his book Guerrilla Days in Ireland, which was published in 1949, and I quote, In June, in my 17th year, I decided to see what this great war was like. I cannot plead I went on the advice of John Redmond or any other politician, that if we fought for the British, we would secure home rule for Ireland. Nor can I say I understood what home rule meant. I was not influenced by the lurid appeal to fight to save Belgium or small nations. I knew nothing about nations, large or small. I went to war for no other reason than I wanted to see what war was like, to get a gun, to see new countries, and to feel like a grown man. Above all, I went because I knew no Irish history and had no national consciousness. So tell us about the rest of his wartime career. Well, the rest of his wartime career, he actually found himself with his unit in Mesopotamia, serving with the artillery, and during the time he took part in many of the battles that occurred in that theatre of operation, including the unsuccessful attempt to relieve the siege of Kut. In 1911, then, his unit was posted to Egypt, where he remained, I think it was till March 1919. He came home then, and like I said, then he was actually demobilized. His military service record, fortunately, was one of the 20 or so percent that survived the bombing of the records office in London during the Blitz. And it does give a certain amount of information about him. A lot of people think that Tom Barry was a sergeant. Well, his record would indicate otherwise. He's shown as a bombardier, which would be roughly, in artillery terms, the same as in Lance Corporal. But then on the 26th of May 1916, a couple of weeks after the Easter Rising, he requested to revert to the rank of gunner at his own request. And that's a direct quote from a service record. It doesn't give any further reason. It is a couple of weeks after the Easter Rising. But again, we don't know whether the Rising had any influence on his request to go back to Gunner. Another interesting document that survived, partially survived anyway, is his conduct sheet, which would give us a good indication of what sort of um, soldier Tom Barry was. And there were a number of entries in it where he was found guilty of some relatively minor offences, like irregular conduct, being late on parade, not complying with an order, creating a disturbance and giving an improper reply to an NCO. He was charged, brought up as before his commanding officer, found guilty, and a punishment awarded consisted of, at the start, a reprimand, then to seven days field punishment number two, 14 days field punishment number two, 28 days field punishment number two. That will, just to elaborate a small bit on that, field punishment number two was a lesser um, version of field punishment number one, where you would be shackled to a fixed object. In the artillery, it would often consist of the wheel of a gun or something like that. 
This would have um, meant that he would shackled in fetters and handcuffs for a couple of hours each day. So while he did have these um, misdemeanors against him, it would have been no different than any other soldier at the time. And when he was discharged, or sorry, when he was demobilized, I should say that he got a reference that saying he was a sober individual and a good, hard-working man. So what we're looking at today is what turned Tom Barry from a British soldier into an IRA um, leader. Well, again, that's very interesting. For years, all we had on was his own account of this in his book, Guerrilla Days in Ireland. And in that, he describes what he calls his awakening. And I quote, For me, it began in far-off Mesopotamia. It was there, then a battle grill for battleground for the two contending imperialistic armies of Britain and Turkey that I awoke to the echo of guns being fired in the capital of my own country, Ireland. The rude awakening came in the month of May 1916. One evening, I strolled to the orderly tent outside which war communiques were displayed. These one usually scanned in a casual manner, for even then war news was accepted in a more sceptical manner. But this evening there was a special communique headed Rebellion in Dublin. It told of the shelling of the Dublin GPO and Liberty Hall, of hundreds of rebel killed, thousands arrested and leaders being executed. So that's what accounts would indicate that he read when he heard about the 1916 Rising, it led to a change in his own attitude and his thinking. He said he reached Cork in February 1919, and again, and I quote, I approached Sean Buckley of Bandon, telling him who I was, and that I wanted to join the IRA. Buckley told me to return again, and at a later meeting asked me not to parade as yet with the local company, but to act as an intelligence officer against the British military and their supports in Bandon. And as he says, so began my connection with the IRA. However, my own research would indicate that there's a lot more to that story than Barry's own recount, than his own account. So tell me, tell me about that. Right, for example, one thing you have to take into consideration was that when he was demobilized, his record also shows that he was awarded a 40% disability pension for two things, two diseases or conditions that were clearly marked attributable to service. On his record, they are listed as malaria and something called DAH. That means disordered action of the heart. Back then, it was also known as soldier's heart, but today it's known as PTSD, or post-traumatic stress disorder. For this, he was awarded a pension of 16 shillings a week, which commenced on the 17th, sorry, the 7th of August, 1919, to be reviewed in 66 weeks. Another entry on Barry's service record also indicates that his passage to the IRA wasn't exactly straightforward. There's something in his record called the inside sheet. This particular document is used to notate how many times that file would have been withdrawn from the records office to be consulted for a number of reasons. And on one particular entry, it says seeks civil service commission, which to me would indicate that the record was withdrawn to be examined to, on the basis of Tom Barry seeking a position with the British civil service. And sure enough, research I conducted in the National Archives in Kew would indicate that he did indeed look set an exam for a position of a mail clerk in the reconstruction scheme in the Ireland Division sometime in 1919. But the rec- that particular document will also show shows that Tom Barry failed that exam. So looking at this, we know now that Tom Barry applied for a position with the British Civil Service as a male, male clerk, but failed the exam. Another small notation on that inside sheet is also revealing because it reads, and I quote, Sikhs Indian posting. And the date for that is February 1920. No. Unfortunately, the record or the, the rest of the record is damaged, so it, does, it doesn't give any more particular information about this. But again, that would indicate that Tom Barry also looked to get some sort of official government position in India. Now, the word posting 
is reveals a lot because you have to be part of an organization to be posted anywhere. Tom Barry was demobilized. He wasn't exactly discharged. Okay, there is a big difference. He was demobilized and placed on the class said reserve, which means that he could be recalled to the colours. But the bottom line there is he was still part of the British Military Army Organisation or establishment. So in seeking an Indian posting in February 1920, which to me would imply that he was also looking for another civil service appointment or some sort of British appointment in India. Like, the record, unfortunately, was damaged and it doesn't say any more about that. But equally, looking through the newspapers shows another aspect of Barry's post-war life. He also became a member, an active member of the Bandon branch of the National Federation of Discharged and Demobilized Sailors and Soldiers. This was an ex-servicemen's organization that had been formed in 1917 by the Liberal MP James Hogg to campaign for better conditions for discharged and demobilized servicemen, both in Britain and indeed Ireland. So Barry also gravitated towards that for some reason. He was in receipt of a pension, and like I said, he started now to actively campaign on better conditions for his um, fellow um, veterans. Now, at that time, the campaign was a very public campaign, and there were meetings held all over Cork County and City. And one particular meeting held in Cork City Hall on the 8th of November 1919, a few days before the uh, the anniversary of the war. Barry's anger at the treatment being, or the lack of favourable conditions being given to ex-servicemen, can be seen in the following proposal he made, which was carried unanimously. And I quote, this was Tom Barry's proposal. We, the discharged and demobilised sailors and soldiers of Cork City and County, protest against the action of the government and other responsible officials in keeping out of employment... Men who have served their country during the Great War, we condemn as a breach of the promises made us the keeping of, in government and war department employment, civilians who under no circumstances whatever would serve in the Navy and Army, no matter how great the need. And we call upon those responsible to now and at once have such people replaced by discharged and demobilized men. We, who have satisfied the needs of our king and country, now call upon our king and country to satisfy our needs, and we wish it to be known that those responsible for satisfying such needs have ignobly failed. This, the timing of this is interesting because, and this is a direct report from, from the newspaper of the day on reporting on the meeting. If we look at the record I mentioned where Tom Barry applied for a position in the British Civil Service and failed the examination. He's now protesting of the keeping in government employment of men who had never served in the armed forces and demanding that those people be removed from their positions and replaced by those who, and I quote, fought for king and country. So there's a bit of anger and frustration emerging from Barry's public actions and possibly, possibly that may be linked to his own failure to secure a government position. While he was a member, a prominent member of the Bandon branch, trouble soon erupted in, in the Federation because in the winter of 1919-1920, the Bandon branch was abolished. A meeting was held in June 1920 to re-establish it, but Barry on this occasion was very vocal against such a proposal. Again, quoting from a newspaper report of the, of the meeting, he described this meeting, its members, as sleepy and lazy and stated that there were attempts being made to involve ex-servicemen in politics, something that he strongly disagreed with. He then proposed, instead of re-establishing the National Federation of Discharged and Demobilized Sailors and Soldiers in Bandon, he proposed establishing a branch of an organization which was simply called the Ex-Servicemen's Association, but he failed to get a seconder. Another interesting account, or something that might have been critical in turning Tom Barry's 
views or radicalising him was that, in his own words to his biographer, Mita Ryan, and that it appeared elsewhere as well in Peter Hart's book and otherwise in other locations, that sometime after he returned home to Ireland, himself and a friend of his was stopped in Bandon to be questioned about his relationship with the Hales family, who were prominent Republicans. And according to Barry, on this account, he was taken into the local barracks, army barracks down in Bandon, and given, and I quote, a bit of a hiding. So now we had a man who had served his king and country. He was unsuccessful in obtaining civil service employment. He was protesting against the fact that men who never served in the military were in those jobs. He now got a bit of a hiding from his former comrades in khaki, and the situation would get worse. The campaign of ex-servicemen started to turn violent. They occupied the pension office in Cork, held protest meeting, and this brought him into conflict with the security forces. And in the summer of 1920, tension rose and the situation escalated. And on the evening of the 18th of July, a, confront took, a confrontation took place on the Northgate Bridge in Cork between, between veterans and members of the garrison from Victoria Barracks. And during that altercation, a former member of the Royal Field Artillery named John James Burke was bayoneted to death by a British soldier. His funeral was held two days later, and among those shown or listed in the newspapers as being who attended and who formed the Guard of Honour was Tom Barry. So this was July 1920. At this stage, I would suggest that his transformation from gunner to guerrilla was pretty much complete. We now had a man, a veteran, who went off for whatever reason to fight for in the army. He saw many of his comrades die. He came home and like thousands of other veterans all over Britain, he didn't find a land fit for heroes, some sort of utopia that they would come home to. He found a place where veterans were paid poor pensions. They didn't have employment. Accommodation was in the best room. They were angry. They were frustrated. And on the political front, Ireland hadn't been given home rule or anything. So like I said, we now had a man who had fought for his king, who had failed to gain employment, who was outraged by conduct being meted out to ex-servicemen, who got a bit of a hiding by his former comrades in khaki, and now he's seen those very same personnel in the British Army killing an ex-veteran. In my own opinion, immediate time he spent in post-war Ireland done far more to radicalise him than anything about he, he might have said about the Easter Rising. Now, it's understandable why he wouldn't have mentioned that in his book published in 1949, because, like I said, it was a different Ireland then, and that type of thing probably wouldn't have fitted the image that um, Barry was anxious to, to portray. But in this respect, he would have been no different from the thousands of other ex-servicemen who returned home from the war and within a very short time were venting their anger and frustration in a whole variety of ways. So to go back to my original thing, Barry's transformation from gunner to guerrilla was pretty much complete by the summer of 1920. He joined the IRA at that period, and the rest, I suppose, you could say is really history. The impact he made on the War of Independence in Cork was quite significant. To this day, believe it or not, um, personnel from military organisations all around the world continue to study Barry's campaign as a perfect example of asymmetrical warfare. I know people from the American Armed Forces, from the British Armed Forces, have visited West Cork and to study the various aspects, how he operated, how he managed to train, equip the members of his flying column, how the local population reacted, and indeed, what were the responses of the security forces against the rapidly escalating conflict in West Cork that took place in 1920 and 1921. Now, you knew Barry. I did indeed. I met him in, in later life, and he was a very old man. And I remember as a young boy walking through Cork City one day and sitting, looking at him sitting on the quayside, resting on his walking stick, wearing a pair of sunglasses 
sunglasses because his eyes were in a pretty poor condition then. And of course, like many people, I was enthralled by his account of his of his military um, escapades in West Cork. I often cycled up to the site of the Kilmichael ambush to hear him talking and to hear other veterans talking. I spoke to other veterans and looking at these men in the, the twilight of the years, it's very hard to imagine them and the impact that they made or taking part in the war. And the only thing I'll say, when we look at the Irish War of Independence, it was no, it was only one of the many post-war conflicts that erupted at the end of the Great War all over Europe. It was the age where empires were collapsing and in their place many new nations were struggling to be born for want of a better word and I suppose all births are painful and Ireland's the birth of a new nation in Ireland would have been no difference it was a difficult time it was a difficult war and the impact that Barry's service in the British army and his immediate post-war um the post-war conditions he experienced link establishes a direct link between the great war Tom Barry and his decision to take part in the War of Independence later. Jerry, finally, final question is, where can people learn more about Barry and the Cork branch? Well, Tom Barry, I suppose the first starting place would be his own book, Guerrilla Days in Ireland. There are a number of books have been written. Ewan Butler, I think, wrote a book called Tom Barry's Flying Column. The more controversial account of the Kilmichael ambush um, would be found in Peter Hart's book, not the Peter Hart, the historian of the Great War, but Peter Hart, a Canadian academic who wrote a book, I think it's called Cork and the IRA, that was proved very controversial but groundbreaking in its um, study of the War of Independence in Cork. And the Cork branch of the Western Front Association, we have our own Facebook page, we have our own website, we have information on the main website of the Western Front Association, and indeed you find us all over social media. We meet once a month, and it's aspects like this the, the war influence of the war on Tom Barry, other veterans, the war, the campaigns, all of that type of thing, different people, different um, events of the war, and how it impacted on different parts of um, Irish society. That's the type of thing we study. Jerry, thank you very much for your time. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Buthworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time...